Hi there, it's Neil Stephen, CEO of This Is Marketing in downtown Dartmouth and host of This Time Last Year. This Time Last Year is a 10-part podcast series where we explore through intimate conversations the events of March, April, May, and June 2020 in Atlanta, Canada. If you're from the region, you'll be familiar with our first guest in episode one, Stephen McNeil, former Premier of Nova Scotia. Premier McNeil was gracious enough to open the doors to his home and kind enough to share his time as we go in-depth on his experiences this time last year. Well, Premier McNeil, thank you very much for for joining us and and thanks for agreeing to take us back to to this time last year. Thanks for having me. I I, uh, look forward to reflecting. (laughs) Right on. So, you know, um, before we sort of get into the the point by point here of the experience from the last year, I think it would be helpful to get a sense of um, before all of this happened, what was it like to be premier? What was an average day like as the premier of Nova Scotia? Obviously, you represent uh, you're the MLA for Annapolis. That's about a two-hour commute, so you're not going home every day. Uh, so you're living in the city and you're splitting your time, and you're the premier. You did it for seven years before COVID. What was that like? What was the day-to-day like? Well, listen, I I had set up a schedule where, as you as you say, I wore two hats. I was the MLA for uh, the riding of Annapolis, and I always tried to do my Mondays as a constituency day. So I would try to be in my office here locally. That meant I could be home on Sunday, Saturday kind of thing if it worked well. Uh, That way I would be able to flow into my own private life into the beginning of the work weekend as the MLA. And then I would head to Halifax, uh, usually Monday afternoon, Monday night. And it would be, uh, you know, meeting after meeting. We would often, I would often start in the morning with media briefings. Uh, Oftentimes it would be electronic it would come to me i would do that at my apartment uh assess that uh, get a bit of a sense of what was there uh, we would have our day planned out fairly well meeting businesses individuals responding to legislation that may be coming in or what preparing for a treasury board or, or cabinet um but i always said it wasn't what i knew i was going to see that day it's what what showed up that i didn't know was coming uh and there was always there were days where there was stuff that uh we just didn't anticipate uh that would be coming uh, you know somebody said something or something has happened and and uh, people couldn't figure out why you didn't why you didn't anticipate <laughs> the crisis coming <laughs> uh but you know what it uh, i i say this with all sincerity I, I was a real honor and privilege to be the premier uh it's a it's a vantage point that very few people get to have um and um i i tried to stay true to what i believe was right uh, and I knew it wasn't a career. It was just an opportunity to shape where we live. Um, uh, so I tried to stay true to that. So you're working long days, starting early, working late, and then you get you get back to the ride and you get back home Fridays, Saturdays? It would depend. Some weeks it would be Friday. Some weeks it would be Saturday. Right. Um, I always say my family got the, the worst of the job because by the time I got here, the, a good chunk of me was already spent. Um, but it was also... You know, early on in my career, Saturdays and Sundays in the riding were we—they were the heart. They were the—we always said that's where we—they were where you made your bread and butter. You would go out in the community, whether it was the farmers market, and just be social. Uh, you weren't solving problems; you were just meeting people in their community, and they were meeting you, and you were being 
uh, you're being good neighbors. Uh, but for an MLA, that's a real opportunity to go out and just say hi. And if someone has a concern, they'll certainly tell you. And Or I would do a lot of the markets and uh, church teas and, uh, early on. And, and just it was really one of those things we would because I've been in the MLA since 2003 when I first started uh, we would get the local paper and find out everything that was happening on Saturday and just do a schedule up and I off the road I'd go and then of course Sunday would be a day that I'd be here most of the time unless there was a, a specific thing that was happening in the afternoon somewhere but um, and then when I became premier that obviously became more difficult uh, to do all of that and people were much more appreciative of it so in the latter part of my tenure it was I won't say more selective, but there were things that we would do uh, that I would do uh, because it was, you know, my responsibility as the MLA. But it was harder to it was harder to uh, go and do some of those just purely social things that you would normally do because by the time you get home uh, after what had been gone on for the week, you you needed a bit first of all to connect back here in my own home, but also to recharge for the next week. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So a few fewer strawberry socials. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and we worked out a pretty good system with my, like I, I was one of the lucky ones. I had a constituency assistant for the first almost 15 years of my elected office, the same one, which is, which is rare. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, uh, I had, uh, three others who joined me in the latter part of my career. I'd have two at a time really. Um, um, because some were working on constituency files and some were working on, uh, or, or individual concerns and others were working on a more broader perspective of the riding roads and, you know, any projects that were on someone that was overseeing those for me. So we would have a way, uh, you know, with technology today, I would be, I would be kept abreast of all of that stuff. And, uh, and then of course, if, if a constituent needed to deal directly with me, we often do that on Mondays in the riding. Uh, so I had lots of really obviously tremendous support here at home. Uh, but I have also had tremendous support, uh, as the MLA for Annapolis, uh, from my constituency office and the assistants that worked with me. Uh, and then when I was the premier, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if Nova Scotians or Canadians truly appreciate the value of a good political staff. Um, uh, and I didn't say partisan, I said political staff, and there's a big, big difference. Uh, you can be blindly partisan uh, to the detriment of the people you're trying to serve, but you're obviously in a political office where you have to be mindful of the political pitfalls of what's there. Uh, and uh, I've always said that the premier's office is a political office, it's not a partisan office. Uh, so if you didn't vote for me, it didn't really matter. I still had to deliver services for what I thought was best for the province. And I've been surrounded by really good staff, uh, people who have had life experiences, in some cases globally, uh, who came home. Uh, Lori Graham was my most recent chief of staff, who's had uh, a hugely successful career and and uh, uh, came home. And I convinced her it was time to serve the province, and uh, thankfully she did. Um, and I also was lucky in 2013 to be surrounded by very capable ministers. Um, I, I've, I've said this more than once. Um, everyone in, 20, in October 8th of 2013 talked about uh, the size of the majority. They forgot the quality of the majority. Um, I had cab, cabinet ministers that could have been premier. 
Uh, one of them is actually today. Uh, but there were others in 2013. Uh, you know, uh, Karen Casey uh, was a leader of a party across the floor, a uh, very highly respected uh, member, and she's one of many who, uh, who uh, I was able to actually, you know, feel comforted by them having portfolios. And we, we uh, built a really good rapport around, you know, they knew that if there was something that was going to be of major consequences that, you know, my phone would ring. Uh, here's what we have. What are we going to do? It was not, and it was, it allowed us to run a government that was kind of uh, uh, with an understanding that each of us knew what the other was doing. It wasn't a case of ministers running off and doing their own thing, but that speaks to the quality of the people. Uh, that speaks to their own security, their own uh, their own faith in who they are, to be secure enough to make sure that they come back to talk to as the, on a major decision that would impact the province. That they did that holistically, looking at how we manage government as opposed to just looking at their own department, uh, and uh, it allowed us to run a pretty proactive government uh, for the for the seven years prior to the pandemic. That I. I'm, I'm really proud of its record. Um, uh, I'm proud of where we ended up. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, I, I and, and, and that's really a testament to the fortitude of them and, and uh, the commitment to the people who were, were around us. You have to say yes to this. So let's, you obviously love the job. Yes, I do. Yeah. You love the job. Uh, I, st I still did today. I announced I was leaving. Yeah. Um, my curiosity is, uh, what did you love the most about the job for the first seven years uh, leading up to that pandemic? What was the thing that you loved the absolute by, by far, the people I dealt with. Um, um, you know, I, I, I say this when I left office. I, I always, you know, I'm grateful for the people around me. Like I... Um, it's such an intense environment. You know, I've, you know, I've, uh, you know, cried on the phone with people who, uh, who I work with, who've lost somebody. I've laughed and cried on the phone with people who've had new members of their family come. They've supported me in the loss of people in my own family. And we're also in an environment that is unlike most environments. It's a very intense scrutinized workplace like none other. Uh, there's, you know, you jaywalk and someone talks about it. Uh, it is, it is, uh, or every decision scrutinized and everyone has got an opinion on it. So you become very much a group of people who rely on each other. And, and it's, you know, the elected, it's not just the elected body in many ways, the intensity is with, with staff is much more intense, uh, because you're, you're right at the, you're at the, center of it uh and you 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 it, it comes at you constantly um uh, but you know uh, i never and i still don't i i knew this when i when i decided i was leaving i was not going to miss the office i feel very honored to be in the office i love the work but i i made a very conscious effort when i came in not to the office to find me i didn't want the office to be why i was there mm -hmm. uh it you know what it was it, it, it was, it's a great place to be where you can make policy decisions that impact the lives of people for a very long time. Uh, some like them, some don't, but things like organ donation, mm -hmm. uh, consent, it's an extraordinary gift to be able to be part of that kind of a conversation and, and that, but I didn't realize how much I was going to miss the people until I actually 
woke up on the next week and realized, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not going to see mm-hmm. all of these people who I've seen now for week. You know, I see them every week for seven years in the premier's office. Uh, so it really by, by, by far was the people and, and not, you know, it, it, it's a real gift to be that kind of a place where you just begin to understand and think like people, you know what they're, you know what they're thinking and they know what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, then you've got a good group of people around you. Yeah. The fewer words required is always a good indicator. <laughs> your, um, your last 10 months were different than your first seven years. Yeah. That's probably the biggest understatement of the year right there. Um, you had intended to let folks know in April. Yes. That you were going to uh, you know, hang it up. And I, I wonder, um, there was a, there would have been a period of uh, introspection as all this was happening, where you had to make the choice not to do that and to stay. Can you share with us a little bit what that was like, what where your head was at? And- so, you know, I, I um, uh, we called the host back really early, which is it's kind of unique for Nova Scotia. Like we had the host back uh, to pass our budget uh, with the idea that I, which was, you know, we wanted to pass our budget prior to March break was my goal. Uh, historically, if you go back, I've used a couple of weeks prior to March break to do controversial legislation. Then people go home and cool off and then we come back and do a budget. I did the budget earlier that year because I wanted to have the household have people go home for March break, uh, come back. And then uh, I was going to communicate to our and prepare myself and communicate to our team that I would be leaving uh, in April or announcing I'd be going in April. I would stay until they chose a new leader. Um, but as uh, history will tell you, uh, March 13th, the week, uh, the Friday of, of Easter, uh, sorry, of March break, um, uh, we were seeing cases uh, all across the country. Uh, as March break hit, uh, we, even though public health had been preparing and we had pre- been preparing as government for COVID, uh, there's still a shock of when it arrives. We were the last province to, to have a case, mm-hmm. um, but we started to be a bit, uh, um, we try to get in front of most of it. Uh, that's why on that, th- on that 13th, uh, Friday the 13th, when we announced all public servants uh, working for government, if you leave the country, when you come home, you must uh, uh, self-isolate for 14 days. Uh, really was the beginning of me having to realize I, I'm, I have to, uh, the plan of April will be definitely put on hold. Uh, I have to see where this is going to go um, for a couple of reasons. One was um, I didn't want people to think I was leaving, um, you know, um, and not follow what I knew we were going to have to do in terms of getting buy-in from the public. Um and, uh, uh, you know, I, I also at that point thought, uh, you know, this just may, this, you know, I, uh, this may be where I'm supposed to be and, mm. and my destiny may be chosen for me. I, I, you know, so I may have to run again. Uh, so, and, it, and the irony was I still loved the job. I did. It wasn't, so it wasn't a hardship. It, I just, it was, it was kind of more of a time thing for me than it was uh, d- disliking what I was doing. And so there we have it, a premier ready to retire, a pandemic right around the corner. 
everything was about to change. This is March 13th, uh, the date that uh, McNeil is referencing there. As we move now into a more uh, in-depth conversation around the first week of COVID-19 here in the province of Nova Scotia, I want to me- take this time to mention that uh, th- this conversation may very well be triggering for, for some individuals. And if that's the case, uh, please know that your mental health is critically important. And this podcast is going to be here for you know forever or whatever. So come back, listen in a couple of years if you need to. Um, but uh, we do now move into a conversation around covid When was the first time Premier Stephen McNeil heard of COVID-19? When, do, you, do you remember that sort of first conversation about it? Yeah, so I had, I had, as what your listeners would probably know, I have had a record of being in China often, uh, at very times in my tenure. I, I knew when I was hearing what was happening in Wuhan uh, with, with the kind of COVID, and then I was watching it as it was moving around the world. Um, you know, I, I knew enough to admit I didn't know enough. Uh, and that's why public health became an important partner for us. Uh, Dr. Strang and his team were working, uh, who I had only met, I think maybe on, the twelfth of March, not the, when we and when I went on the thirteenth, I had known him obviously as our public health officer. But they do a lot of things independently of government, and there's lots of people who work for government that I wouldn't interact with. But he and his team have been working and preparing for this, and I would get a briefing from the you know the minister would go in, and I would get a briefing on it. Uh, but I don't, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, it was very to, to under to begin to understand the severity of it. Uh, was was really closer to you know the beginning of, of March uh, because of, it hit Canada you know when it starts hitting in, in and it was starting to sweep across and we began to realize you know uh, well we we then started preparing our system uh, for a major lockdown um, and and the thing that our team, it wasn't just me. I mean, I said to you, I was surrounded by strong people in my office and very capable people I was going to be grateful for. Um, we were seeing jurisdictions that were not active, acting aggressively on the front end, which meant they were having a hard time to, to control it. So we kind of made a decision that once it arrived and as we prepared for it, that we would, we would aggressively attack uh, where we thought the virus would spread and, and, and put in very aggressive. In many ways, people would see uh, um, uh, far reaching policy decisions, but it really was about uh, public health and, and uh, our team. So we kind of ran this uh, with, and then, uh, Dr. Strang came to our uh, to the office with us, and we worked in tandem. So, w- if you look at what's happened, we were one of the few provinces where, like, I never went out without public health. If I was out by myself, it was because I was doing something with cabinet. It wasn't about public health. It wasn't about the coronavirus. Uh, I and Dr. Strang never went out without me. Uh, that was a decision that we had made together. My chief of staff uh, was heavily involved in this. Uh, she often met with Dr. Strang more than I did uh, on, on, and, and we, because I was also governing and trying to deal with things besides. So we really ran, I call it a trifecta. Uh, and, 
it was one where we we weren't telling public health what to do. We needed them to communicate to us, so we would know what to do on public policy side for that was outside of public health. And I, I listen. I uh, so that was really for us uh, how how this started. And if you look. And even at the first week of COVID, after the first case, uh, we made uh, an aggressive approach to locking down the province in a way that uh, uh, was trying to protect, um, uh, the, you know, the, the spread of this virus as rapidly as it was spreading in other parts of the country and globally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at this point, I had to in in post here cut this question out the way that I asked this question was absolutely brutal and it's because I was nervous Um, this is a question that felt really journalistic I'm not a journalist Uh, my goodness this is something that I'm interested in that's why I'm doing this project but I'm not a journalist this one though was a question that had been really on my mind Um, the way we make decisions is so um, filtered through the lens of, of, uh, of attitude or mentality and the premier's relationship with fear and how he experiences fear seems to me it was a really important indicating factor of how this was all going to go in our province anyway. Um, and so we're talking about March 13th. It's a couple days before the whole province shuts down uh, because of the presumptive positive cases on in, in the province. So I'm asking him at this sort of peak moment of uncertainty but impending problems What's his relationship like with fear? Uh, I want to get a sense of where his head's at. So, uh, oh, listen, we were uh, we were scared of where this was going to uh, go. Uh, I can tell you, when I was watching what was happening around the world, it was the healthcare system I was looking at. Um, we knew that uh, you know, by and large. Uh, and it's not true for every part of it, but by and large, you know, the vast majority of people who got COVID were going to recover. Um, but we also saw parts of the world where they didn't aggressively go after it, where the healthcare systems get brought to their knees, and even in some parts of Canada. Um, and that's our acute care system, ICUs across the province. So we were, I, uh, you know, that's, that, that the, was I fearful? Absolutely. Uh, you know, when I'm watching going on in other parts of the world where they're having to make a decision of who gets a ventilator and who doesn't, I don't want anyone to have to have made that decision. Uh, but it was a real thing that was happening. Um, uh, that's why on March 15th, in the first case, and then really the, the number of we, the, the weeks after, we began to really aggressively pursue public policy positions to stop the spread. And we, we, we shut down our healthcare system. Thirty percent of our healthcare system got shut down because we needed those beds. We didn't know, thankfully, and we didn't need them. But that's the part that was terrifying to me. Uh, was imagine being a healthcare provider who had to determine whether you got the ventilator or I got it, uh, and that did happen in places around the world. Uh, um, and that was the level of fear that I had of what will happen to our healthcare system. Uh, and thankfully, uh, uh, Dr. Strang and, and uh, 
the heads of the IWK and the Nova Scotia Health Authority uh, had that same fear. And we really began uh, to, to, uh, to aggressively ensure that we had as much capacity around the IC units as we could. And, and I think one of the things that we often forget about this, uh, healthcare providers had fear too and because early on even though this had been happening there was so much about it it happened like it spread so rapidly there was so much about it we didn't know uh, and even though they would get up and go to work every day to provide care for citizens uh, it caused a lot of anxiety for them uh, and pressure on them uh, and I'm sure you know, they're going to work and then coming home to their own families uh, in, in, on the front line. So uh, fear was a real part of all of this, but uh, uh, it was also not going to paralyze us. Uh, I said that uh, COVID operated on uh, and thrived on arrogance and ignorance, uh, and we couldn't afford to allow either one of those to be part of our process. So now... We're, you and I are chatting on March 15th. Yeah, so ironically. Yeah, ironically. It's a year to the day that you know you and Dr. Strang um, sat in front of uh, the press gallery and, and shared that the province had now um, recognized three presumptive positives. So at that point, it's a positive in our lab, but we do need to send it right. away to be confirmed. But for all intents and purposes, you're being told this, these are positives. Can you start by just giving a sense of, uh, up until this point, COVID is something that's happening elsewhere. And then you were told, no, it is now officially here. Where are you when you hear that information? And, and where does your head go? So I, 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 was, in, I, I was in Halifax. So um, um, the house had just ended. Uh, I stayed because I, we, and the case is actually, uh, we were identified on, on, on Saturday afternoon, we reported them Sunday. Um, that's kind of the, they lagged a day pretty much. Um, you know, we knew it was coming in the sense of, uh, but it's here and then, and then it becomes uh, real, real. Um, and um, we then started to say, okay, now, and, and in some ways we were fortunate it was March break uh so you know our school system had been shut down our kids had been home uh it gave us a bit of a a chance to to then uh to lay out we had we had kind of had steps in place to what we would be doing uh you know we then shut down child care uh, any large gatherings where we would have or any intimate workspaces mm -hmm. uh and much of that was in, in many ways when i look back on it was um, and some of it was based on science and some of it was based on admitting what we didn't know. Uh, because ultimately through this process, science has, uh, has uh, demonstrated that some things can function, but our school system um, and then, you know, cause we, we literally locked it down. We didn't bring it back. We started doing at home learning. Uh, but you know, my, you know, and, and that, you know my you know i don't think i don't know if we even had the time to think about how long this would be 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even know if anyone did. It was here. It's here. Now, what are the steps we're going to take to kind of slow uh, its spread? Uh, and that's really and and that's why it was so critical for us to and and why we just as a government chose with the to to ensure that public health and the government uh, were uh, at one. It didn't mean we always agreed, uh, but it meant uh, that we were able to talk it out. Uh, and as I said, my chief would be, my chief staff was involved in, in that. And oftentimes she would have the discussion with Dr. Strang and uh, to come at a good spot uh, of where, and, and we, and these were uh, to, to be consistent in specificity was the, was the consist, consistency and specificity were the words that uh, she kept uh, saying to us, both Dr. Strang and I, uh, and, and that meant, you know, be specific, tell people what you know, when you know it, uh, we're all in this together. This is not something. So if you today, if you got a case, tell them if, if, if we got to do this, tell them why. I'm just going to pause here. And, uh, cause if you're listening and you're not really following on that closely, or you didn't catch this, what the premier is saying is he's talking about the importance of consistency and specificity, specificity, <laughs> I struggle with it just like him. Anyhow, this is advice coming from Lori Graham, his chief of staff. Um, it's important for people to understand that Lori Graham is an excellent chief of staff, had been in the job for a considerable period of time prior to the pandemic, but she's also a world-class communicator and communication strategist. Um, so the province and everyone in it and the whole region of Atlantic Canada benefited greatly from her ability to work with Dr. Strang and Premier McNeil to communicate things clearly. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us today. My name is Tina Tebow and I'm the Director of Media Relations for the Province of Nova Scotia. I will be your moderator for this afternoon's news conference. Joining us today, the Honourable Stephen McNeil, Premier of Nova Scotia. The date is March 15th, 2020. The Premier, Dr. Strang, his Deputy Chief and the Minister of Health enter the press room. Um, as they have many times, and the press room is full of journalists, as they have uh, been in that room hundreds of times. Uh, there is no social distancing. All four uh, members of the, uh, the government sit um, side by side, uh, and the Premier tells the province that uh, we officially now have COVID-19 in Nova Scotia. Thank you and, and welcome. Uh, as you know, uh, we now have our first three presumptive cases of COVID-19 here in Nova Scotia. And first of all, my thoughts are with those individuals, and I want to wish them a speedy uh, and thorough recovery. As we sit in the now former Premier's kitchen uh, in Upper Granville, I asked Stephen McNeil about that moment, and I, I sit for him and I list the changes that his government introduced on that day. You introduced inspections at the airport, schools and daycares to remain closed for at least two weeks after March break. All March break camp uh, camps were canceled. Parents crying everywhere. Uh, no visitors at long-term homes. Bar owners, uh, VLTs and casinos, no more. Public service workers encouraged to work from home. Social distancing mandated. This is the first time we hear social distancing. Social distancing mandated for restaurants, occupancy of 150 only. This is the 15th, this is the Sunday. Then you say, 
Um, we all have to do our part. This is you. We, we all, all have part. to do our part to reduce the spread and keep Nova Scotians healthy and safe. Take care of one another, be kind to one another, and ensure that we support those in our province who require our support. The kindness message repeats throughout your entire time, both from you and Dr. Strang. Was there was that an intentional discussion around that sort of language, or did that come naturally? Uh, well, it's part of I think who we try to be, uh, but there was an intention to that. Uh, you know, uh, it was we were trying to reassure the word kindness. Uh, we were trying to reassure, and and listen, that's my part of this is my staff in this conversation. Not part of it, and big part of that. But so, so I, I'm always, I'm always feeling like I'm. I don't want to take credit for uh, everything. I just happen to be the, the word, the, the person who communicates the words. But we, we had a great conversation. So, and I tell you, we ran this as a trifecta. So, my, my, I don't want to underestimate the role uh, that uh, Lori played in all of this because it was huge. Um, but the kindness message really was around. We were starting to worry about whether or not you were going to worry about whether I had traveled and if I traveled, was I following and people were going to start doing their own things and thinking they were the ones who were to enforce everything. So what we wanted to really remind people is to be kind. Uh, kindness matters. It's what we typically would do when somebody is frightened and scared and afraid we support them. Well, we were all frightened and scared and afraid. So the natural thing then for all of us to do, if we're all admit, we'll acknowledge that that's where we were. The next phase of that is all under, each of us understanding that and then acting in a kind a way and thoughtful way. Uh, and that really was part of it. And it continued to be for our entire 11 months that I was there. Uh, one of the continued to be our message. Um, uh, and I, I think by and large it resonated with Nova Scotians when, when we talked about it. And then that goes back to the, the specificity and consistency uh, that we tried to do. So you find it on the 12th. Um, and it's announced on the 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 third the sorry the fifth my goodness you find out on the fourteenth it's announced on the fifteenth so right away you announce it now we have COVID in the province um, how does your life change you're now the premier of a province that has COVID and uh, the first seven years this is the way my life was how did things change that week in terms of your routines and your schedules and uh, the people you were interacting with. So I literally isolated from my family. Uh, we as an office created our, uh, our own, I, I like to call it, the, we, we affectionately called it the Petri dish. Uh, we had our own, we had probably the first bubble in Nova Scotia. So uh, there were five or six of us uh, uh, who uh, from that day forward uh, went home uh, from, in my case, uh, my, you know, each of us, live separately and, and, and all of us really were alone uh, because like I had to go into the city. So my family's here, Lori's family was in the Valley. She was in the city. Uh, a couple of the, the other staff members lived in the city independently. So we just basically said, okay, uh, here, here are the rules. You got to work home. You know, you can't, uh, if you're going out, you can't go, out. this is, this is our, where we're going to be until we get a handle on this. 
so it became uh, COVID was it. Uh, there were certain aspects early on of governing, uh, but the reality of it was the biggest issue facing our province was COVID, and we had to deal with it. And and all other things wouldn't matter if we couldn't control this or get public health. So while we ran government, uh, it really was a focus on COVID. And every day we'd go to the office and we'd start out what happened overnight. Like I was, the, uh, you know, the first thing I would do is get up and grab, reach for my phone to find out, if, you know, what the numbers were. And if they weren't there, you'd have anxiety until you got them. And then... What time are you getting up? Oh, it would, it would vary. But we'd be up like, you know, I'd be up between six and seven. And then we would just go in and do... But the, I would normally wake up at that time anyway. Um, uh, would never not necessarily start my day then, but I'd get up and uh, and then there'd be discussion on what happened. And, and then we, so it really was the beginning of isolating ourselves uh, from uh, from everyone, including our families. Uh, that we we did that for about um, the first five or six weeks of um of that um and it was we did it seven days a week so um you know mike andrea and colleen and jeffrey would drop the odd thing off at my apartment but they would do it for most they would leave it in the parking spot in the basement and i would go get it um because uh, there were just so many things we didn't know uh, and i think it was important for us to, to uh, I mean, if we were going to ask people to do certain things, we had to be willing to do it. Or, like you had to had to make sure people understood you were doing it too. This wasn't one of these things that I had a rule for you and didn't have one for me. So we really tried, and and I was out in the boat, and then we just really shut down our floor, uh, and really outside of Doctor Strang, very few people would have got on that floor because it it started to become obvious to us that this might be here for a bit. Uh, and if you look at the first week of this, I was out with cabinet ministers at different announcements. Well, we stopped that because it became, because once it started, like I, uh, if, if, if I got COVID, I needed the deputy premier to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So her and I couldn't be at the same place. So, so that was an intentional thought. Yeah. Process. Yeah. This is why when the minister Delory was in town with us, well, he had a family in Antigonish, so we sent him to Antigonish. It didn't stop working. Mm. He was on the calls and doing all this stuff, but it was to keep because if 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 I got COVID, who's going to do this? So w- it was really uh, we did the same thing with all of our ministers. We c- communicated with them, but we tried to keep people apart. It sounds uh, it's it sounds uh, uh, almost wartime like activity, but it, in reality, it was that was what we were faced with because we didn't know. But like there was, like I said, we didn't know how much COVID was going to be, how quickly it was going to spread. Um, and you know, if I get sick, who was going to deal with it? Um, uh, and that's why we became pretty insular on how we, uh, you know, in terms of interaction with people, we, we really just tried to keep it to a very, very, bare minimum. When you go back and you look at the uh, press conferences every day, you get further apart from one another. Yeah, <laughs> you can tell you're realizing it almost in real time. It's it's an interesting process to sort of watch. So that was the 15th, and then we get to the Monday the 16th. It's you know those. It's so I'll tell you it's, yeah. it is interesting. But one of the things is, uh, and early on we we were uh, it, it was really because and and it, it showed you how public health also evolved over this period of time because 
they didn't have an issue with us sitting next to each other because we were actually facing out or we weren't looking at each other. It's not like we were talking to one another. We were actually talking out into the room. So that, even if it was, even if it was, uh, you know, you could spread it that way, at least they felt safe enough that we all sat and sit at the table. But as it evolved, we re- we did start pushing it out six feet, but it was as much for the message. First of all, in my case, I wanted our colleagues to be in a place where if, if I was sick, they because we're going to have to call up on them to come and do uh, work. And occasionally we brought one of them into the city to do uh, some of the press conferences. But it was really then we were asking you to be six feet apart. That was really, yeah. So we started spreading uh, uh, apart. One of the reporters asked us that. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and Dr. Strang answered it. Uh, and with that answer, we were not facing each other. But when we came out, we kind of said, you know, there's a there's a visual of that, though, even though that's a good health policy and you're doing it for healthy reasons. But there's a there's another there's actually a visual that actually con- kind of contradicts what we're saying. So that's when we started yeah, spreading out. And the room you were looking out on to must have gotten thinner and thinner. Yeah, so we we did. Yeah, so we had tables set aside six feet apart. You could come in, set that, and then and then eventually it got emptied. Yeah. So we, you're doing press conferences basically just to cameras, and then everything was yeah coming in. Yeah, and the front and the front end it was they were they were uh, they were there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the fifteenth. You find out on the fourteenth. It's announced on the fifteenth. Nationally, on the 16th, uh, the Prime Minister announces that only four airports are going to accept international flights. Um, there's continued improvement of our own contact tracing and uh, lab capacity here in the province. Uh, we get two more presumptive cases in the Halifax area. And we start to see <laughs> chairs of distance at uh, your press conference. You're assuring the very, one of the very first things you say on that Monday is to the daycares. You talk about, um, don't worry, parents, your spots are still assured. And don't worry, daycares, we're going to help you. Um, And it got me thinking about you coming from a family the size that it is. And in my world, you know, I'm a marketer. The size of your family is basically a focus group. (laughs) And so I wonder, you know, what were you hearing on Sunday? You go, you do this. Obviously, you're hearing from family, you're hearing from colleagues, but that, that Sunday is a big deal. It starts to get very real. And then obviously the Monday following, you've got additional changes. You're clarifying some things. What were you hearing from folks uh, in, in the interim, in, in between? Uh, what was the, the feedback like? Um, people were just scared. And, and, you know, the old saying, knowledge is power. This was one of the, you know, there was a lot of what we didn't know. And I keep going back to that. And, I, and if you look at our, our actions, it, it, it was an admission by government and public health or things here we don't know, but I'm going to tell you, we're going to be, we're going to, we're going to, it's, we're going to, some might consider us overreacting. Mm-hmm. It, it's easier to come back than it is to go forward after you've made or, or the, or, or the consequences of not reacting are far greater uh, than, than that. So, uh, I think everyone kind of viewed it that way. Um, uh, Dr. Strang likes to say, uh, you know, we were the last province, which meant we got to watch and learn from others, which was, uh, which is true. We didn't know 
the amount of uh, the impact in schools and, and uh, childcare daycares. Uh, so, and it's also in many ways, uh, you know, uh, not to be, not to be partisan or political here, uh, you know, people, uh, it's been a sector that's often not valued, uh, not understanding the important role they played and have been playing. And, uh, we wanted to, uh, make sure that we un- we understood their value, and by what we we were one of the only provinces in the country that actually, so we closed our our child care centers. Uh, we funded the provincial grants associated with them. Uh, there were some costs, obviously, but you know everyone felt a bit of this, and but but by and large they were kept uh, intact. Um, and we also then allowed the ones that are unregulated, that are five under, stay open. Um, but we wanted to send a message to them that we valued them as much as we valued our public school system. Uh, and while you know uh, the people in our public school system were going to be home uh, and we we're going to keep them and paying them, we wanted to do the same thing for our childcare workers to make sure that they understood that. Uh, they will be required when we come out of this. Uh, and uh, as we now know, they were required sooner than that. Uh, we had them back in functioning in June. Now, you did a lot during your time as Premier on the economic front of the province. Uh, you know, you've mentioned the, the engagement with, with China. Um, you know, you really had a laser focus on that. Um, and as a business owner, thank you. Um, you mentioned on the Monday, you, you reference um, small and medium-sized businesses and access to credit. And uh, it's noticeable because when you look at other provinces, their leaders aren't, that's not something anyone else is talking about, but you're one of the first that I could find that mentions this. Um, can you get us, and it, it comes up later in the week again with some policies that you guys rolled out in terms of support for business. Um, where was your head at? Why was, I, I think it was very smart to be thinking that because it's usually important. Well, what allowed you to be in that headspace? What, what were the factors? Well, I know the challenges facing many small business owners. I, you know, you're, you're sitting in my house, at my kitchen table. Those are the discussions that would happen when I was running my own business. Uh, you know, uh, and I was also telling your customers to stay home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you know don't gather uh so i knew the impact and i also um uh, there's something that uh, that i i think i've had the luxury and or good fortune or whatever because i did run my own business it never lost sight of me that when i didn't get up and go to work i never got paid and and that when i and that when i needed to go to the bank the host that we're sitting in would be part of the conversation um and here i am now um, a boat to make decisions for people who through no fault of their own uh, are going to be put under a tremendous amount of pressure both so, personally and and both personally and because mm-hmm. this listen on our own families finances play an important that causes a tremendous amount of stress um, and it's tough enough when they're self-inflicted uh, but yeah. it's when but when it's when it's through no fault of your own, you didn't do anything wrong. And, and banks were starting. And, and by the way, banks were fantastic through this whole process and have been, but they're obviously worrying about that as well. So, you know, and, and they're looking at a customer who's coming in and saying, okay, well, your customer base is, you know, like we're telling the, 
appliance repair guy, you can't go into the house. We're telling, you know, we're telling everyone and we're telling restaurants, you can only do takeout. Uh, the landlord still wants the rent, uh, you know, where, and we, we could see that credit was going to be hard. And, and so it was more of a, more of a, um, you know, and I, I, I don't think politicians actually get enough, uh, uh, uh credit for being somewhat human. Um, but I was, I, a lot of the decisions I made in the seven years and including with COVID, uh, I, I often looked, I never lost sight of that. I was going to impact somebody. Uh, and, and, uh, and in this case, these impacts were, uh, like, it, I don't know I say this, you know, having a dispute about whether you get 1% pay raise or a 3% pay raise is, is a very different one. And in your own mind, and you can rationalize that. That's not, you know, than saying to a business owner who's put their house on the line, uh, "I'm closing you," mm-hmm. uh, and the banks are being jittery about credit. Um, I'm I'm changing your life. Uh, I'm not I'm not slowing down the growth of your income. I'm changing your life, um, um, and you know you you really do wear that. There's no. But I, I go back to it, and I still, to this day, uh, think it was the right decision. And I'm glad, uh, you know, that, that business owners understood uh, that we were trying. It wasn't a personal thing. It was really we were trying to slow this thing down so we could get them open as soon as we possibly could uh, with some restrictions so they could at least have some income. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying this on the, on the, uh, the Monday, it's the 16th. It wouldn't be till later in the week when you actually took that step as more cases came out where you actually took the step and said, okay, restaurants and bars are all closed. Everyone needs to work from home. And, and so you, you could see things that others couldn't see. Yeah. Well, we, 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 we could feel it coming. There's no, and, and what we knew and, and, and what we knew is we were going to act aggressively. We were going to take measures that others hadn't. Um, and I think they will, put us in good stead. Um, but, and, and that's, that was not only seeing what happened in Europe and and that was seeing what was happening in the rest of Canada. We were watching that. Um, and you know, we just felt that there was going to be some really tough medicine here. Uh, and not everyone was going to like it and not everyone was going to share in the pain equally. This is one of the other things that I think a lot of us have to understand. While we were telling public servants to work from home, they were still being paid. Um, um, business owners were about to, we were about to cut off their income um, and their bills were kept coming. <laughs> you know, So uh, we, need, we knew that we couldn't wait. And I, you know, credit to the federal government uh, they spent uh, early on, uh, you know, they responded as well. And what we did, and the reason sometimes we lagged a little bit behind in terms of announcing our, our relief programs, whether it was individually or, or business-wise, is we were trying to see what is the federal government doing and where are the gaps for us as a province or our business communities. So that's why some of our rent programs are different than other provinces. It's why, you know, we... The CERB, when it got announced, we had a program in place that if you had issues with EI, we had a, you know, we had a program for you. 
if you didn't qualify for EI, we had a program for you. If you didn't, you know, so as opposed to making it blanket across the entire sector in the province, we were filling in the gaps of where the federal government had, uh, you know, where programs they had announced, and there might be some gap for a Nova Scotian. So, um, but uh, yeah. So along that first week, sort of that 15th to the 22nd, again, you, you announced the state of emergency on the 22nd that gives you uh, more more powers, more enforcement powers, frankly. Um, how often are you engaging with the other premiers nationally and the and Ottawa and Prime Minister's office? So we would be at least once a week early on, and then it became bi-weekly. Um, there would be conversations from within, you know, individual premiers you would be chatting with. Um, but by and large, it was in our first week, and, and really I would argue our first two weeks of this, um, was executing uh, the things that we knew we're going to have to do when a case came, mm -hmm. and if the case continued to grow. grow. So, you know, working with public health, uh, we then, you know, and we, and I think one of the things that you, and I'll go back to this, uh, <laughs> consistency and specificity uh, you 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 alluded to the two weeks that we closed schools after march break we operate in two-week cycles in many ways uh if we did something uh, parks for example we would say for two weeks and then we will assess it the epidemiology will tell us even though by and large most public health officers would say a month it's two cycles well, we did one cycle as our operating principle, and then we would review it close to that, and then we might extend it for two more weeks. Or if the epidemiologist was stable, and then we might be able to have some flexibility. Uh, and I think that was an important, uh, important ability for us to get buy-in from uh, from uh, you know Nova Scotians. Anyways. There must have been, uh, maybe trying to think back to, to that week, there, there must have been a point at that week where you you came to realize my, my governing agenda as premier, the things I was hoping to accomplish maybe this year, those just aren't going to happen. What was what was that realization like? Well, we, we you know, it's, it's funny. Um, going into... Uh, the pandemic on every indicator um, the economic health of this province had never been better um, uh, you know we had a population all-time high unemployment and all-time low investment was coming in our young people were living here we got younger our population age medium age dropped uh, you know we were seeing development um, so the, really it was uh, it really was on fire in many ways um, but we quickly came to the real, and this became a bit of a, we, we had all of these mantras and one of them, uh, but one of them was, uh, with, without, uh, good public health, you won't have good economic health. And I think it's been, I think that's held true. And, and I think it still holds true. Uh, so while the, the, and we felt, and I and I still feel this way, the foundation of going into the pandemic for the province was solid. Uh, are there issues? Of course. Um, but 
you know, the economic foundation was there. If you look, uh, you know, and I think our approach to um, kind of find out where the gaps were with the federal money that was coming out helped us in a position to be able to respond to a whole bunch of things in a, in a, in a way, in a broader way from the keeping child care is in a good position, uh, looking at our tourism, you know, the major tourism icons, how do we put a program together for them? These business programs that we could set aside and, and draw down on based on revenue. Of, um, uh, that's still there. Um, you know, this year the province will have a, a substantial deficit uh, in comparison to the other Canadian provinces. It'll probably be at the bottom. Uh, one of the lowest in the, and I don't say that in a, but I don't say that in the sense of, because I believe we responded to the, the issues people had, but we came into this in a very different way. And there's no reason coming out of this that our province couldn't get back to fiscal health. So for me, it wasn't a question of the governing agenda and the economic agenda that we were going to lay out for the next number of months. That could, it just got delayed. And uh, this really became this issue. And if we couldn't have good public health, uh, the economic health was going to disappear uh, and become much tougher. And I, I think we're in a good foundation to continue once once the vaccines roll out. A little bit more. No problem. Um, so the 17th comes the Tuesday. Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of speed through a little bit here, but I'm gonna hit it on a few couple days here all at once. 17 uh, comes, uh, public gatherings reduced to 50 people. We've got seven cases. Um, and Dr. Strang makes his fir fir first reference to, to ratting on your neighbor. Um, he says, we don't want to approach this situation with fear. We want to approach this situation from a sense of caring for each other and a sense of community. We live in a really connected world where everyone has a microphone, even me. And information spreads rapidly. Um, what, was there, what was the level of concern about the, 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 the public message getting out of control uh, and being co-opted uh, in that digital space? So we didn't worry about that from our perspective, from, I, or I, I didn't maybe, but because uh, it goes back to being consistent and, and specificity, uh, consistency and specificity. We told everyone what we knew. And I think people looking at us knew we were doing that. What we were worried about, you're, you're right, everyone has a microphone and everyone in the digital world. That doesn't mean it's accurate. We were putting it in context. What was happening in communities wasn't. So what are, or some of the platforms, like, you know, to give you an example, you know, someone would see an American license plate well, the person might have rented that U-Haul in one part of our province that has American plates on it. But people were making an assumption that Americans are moving here. Well, that U-Haul has been in Nova Scotia for a year. Do you know what I, and, and we were trying to say to people, you, you have to, uh, the worst thing that could happen to us is to have that level of anxiety and fear and anger take over this conversation. And then we lose control of being able to control the virus is really what we were, our message was. And in a position of kindness and in a position of thoughtfulness, 
you uh, have, uh, uh, you can clearly think and logically follow these steps. And I would say to you, one of the things, this is one of the very few times that I say to people, we had it in our own hands, mm -hmm. which was washing our hands, keeping our distance, looking out for one another. We could save lives. Yeah, you said, uh, oh, can poster arrive. <laughs> Look at that, rural postal delivery. We took a break uh, here. Um, McNeil uh, went out into the porch and answered the door and uh, had a classic uh, Nova Scotian conversation of two people trying to communicate thanks back and forth um, for about 30 seconds. And then he came back in and, and brought the parcel. He uh, put a load of wood uh, uh, on the fire <laughs> and uh, he poured himself another coffee into a mug emblazoned with... Uh, Stay the blazes home, uh, like a tin mug, uh, and, and return to the table to continue the conversation. Back in your family environment, isolate yourself from your loved ones. It's the least you can do, and you protect not only them, you protect your neighbors and communities. And w this is the single biggest thing we can do uh, to protect our system. Uh, because if we end up getting more and more of the virus going into uh, either a long-term care facility or one of our health care facilities, it's much diff more difficult uh, to control it. It's quite frankly, literally, 80% of this is in the hands of each of us. By cleaning our hands and by doing the proper protocol of self-isolating ourselves. That's the gift we have about this virus, in my view, that every one of us, every one of us, can take the appropriate steps to protect the people we love and to protect the people who are around us, our fellow Nova Scotians, by just doing these simple, unselfish steps of protecting our communities. And so that was the part that I felt was the most interesting of that whole comment was unselfish. Uh, the Premier uses the term unselfish. And I asked him, was that intentional? Do you remember that was an intentional use of the term unselfish? Yeah. Uh, we had felt... Uh, uh, if if, 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 quite frankly, if you couldn't do those simple tasks, uh, you were selfishly uh, putting your own um, ego, uh, sometimes needs, uh, or sometimes wants, not needs, uh, ahead of uh, the health and well-being of the people you care about uh, and their neighbors and the rest of us. Um, uh, I, as I said to you as part of this, I think, COVID thrived on arrogance and ignorance. Um, and uh, to me, not following those uh, public health protocols demonstrated both uh, on behalf of those who cho chose not to. Uh, and uh, it would had deadly consequences. On March 18th, the, uh, there's an announcement that the, the US-Canadian border is gonna close. That's unprecedented. It will take effect in a day or so. The federal government introduces its first major spend of $82 billion um, to provide all sorts of support to the provinces. Um, provincially, we say doctors and pharmacists can start doing their work for, through virtual care, phone calls, Zoom or video calls. Um, doctors Nova Scotia waives the fee for retired doctors to re-enlist. That feels like wartime. Um, more nurses are at 811. Access Nova Scotia offices across the province are closed. Um, and we, we released people, 41 people from correctional facilities. 
at the time you say, this is the time that we need to be our best selves. This is the time that we need to be there for Nova Scotians. We need to be kind, caring, and compassionate. You're about ready to lay the, the, the hammer down. The next couple of days, you're gonna lock everything down. Um, is this again, you trying to prepare folks? Uh, it was trying to bring people along with us, yeah. Uh, with the hope that it was it was preparing them for what was about to come. Um, at the same time, it was also preparing them to be, uh, you know, we're usually known as welcoming, caring, kind people. Mm -hmm. um, now was the time to prove it. Uh, and because this was going to test us all. And it's why we kept that message through this process. Uh, and um uh, yeah and then we were prepared and getting ready to to really lock things down in a way that uh would be unprecedented for um you know this province i, I would argue probably uh, has never happened before um yeah you um you're going through this you're getting ready to sort of lay the hammer down. And you mentioned earlier that the, the sort of the epidemiological windows went in two week increments. In the normal public opinion world, they go in polling increments or, you know, there, there's an opportunity, you announce something, you're able to get a sense of how it lands. Um, probably, you know, usually before you announce it, you kind of have a sense because you've tested and you know, that's what happens when big things happen and get announced. This week, you're, everything is on the fly. Nothing's poll tested. There's nothing. It's just instincts. You're well into the week. How do you know? It, what was your sense of what was landing, and how were you evaluating that? How could you? You, were, you had literally put yourself in a bubble. Yeah. So what we did was, though, prior to COVID, we I, I can't prior to it coming here, I should say, uh, we we were watching what happens when you tried to do a half measure. Or, you, or if you didn't act fast enough. So I don't want to understate this, but I think this is kind of how you, you, I think you had to think about it. This is one of those times where overreacting is better than not reacting. Mm -hmm. And I think, so, so what if we got it wrong and we overreacted? Just, it just meant that we might've saved lives. So that for us was that that's how we kind of viewed this thing. This is not a half, this is not a time to have a half, half measures. An easy decision to make in, in that reference, in that frame. So I, I'll give you an example. We shut restaurants completely down. Right. They were doing uh, to take over. We closed them. Yeah. Um, other parts said we're just reducing you to 50%, mm -hmm. but they were still able to function. Well, we, we felt in, in, in some ways, you know, we were learning too, but we felt it's, it's, it, 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 if we wanted to actually stop the spread of taking off and community spread here, it was going to take some really, really tough decisions on the front end, but it would allow us to open up faster and quicker on the other side. It was our thought process. And, and I always say this uh, to, if I, if I had said to you, you need to reduce 
down to 50%. You would have done that and tried to do it the best you could, uh, but you wouldn't have had all the public health protocols in place that we needed to put in place or all the stuff we did. By shutting it down to zero, when we then started up to 50%, you were ready to go. You had put in the screens, you had your PPE became part of it, social distancing, all of that. So you didn't try to get to 50% of the chaos of trying to figure out how we're gonna do this through public health protocols and all of that stuff. We actually just shut it down completely. And then we started working with the organizations that represent it, whether it's bars or restaurants or hair salons or uh, that, that, okay, what are the public health protocols that would allow you to function to have some level of revenue coming in? Uh, and and uh, we felt that bringing people, you know, just coming down to complete closure uh, was the appropriate step for us to take to get, first of all, the fully for people to fully understand this, this thing is serious. And, and second of all, uh, that would allow us to confidently open up and provide confidence to, uh, to the public that it is okay to go and have dinner under these conditions. And, and, and that's how we approached it. Um, to, go, to go a little bit back to the question, I'm curious in, in real time, I mean, what, what I'm really getting trying to get a sense of, you were very um, intentional about your language. In addition to the actions, the actions were clear and decisive, but the language was, was distinct. When, when you compare it to other provinces, for instance, it's distinct. And uh, you know, one would, I think, easily argue it was very effective. But in, the t in that moment, how did you know what, whether or not it was landing? Like, were, were you getting reports from your digital team saying, oh, these are the comment structures that we're hearing? Or what was the, how did you know what was working and what wasn't? So we, we uh, yeah, I mean, we would see that. Like, so we live streamed all of those conferences, all of that. So that we, we had some ma massive viewing audience. So, yes, so yeah. we, we knew wh what was landing with people and what people, and, and we knew people were finding comfort from, from it. Uh, that's why we continue to do it. Mm -hmm. And we set a structure up differently than most provinces. Uh, but, you know, that, you know, we get into a rhythm where, um, you know, my chief of staff would come in in the morning and oftentimes we would have a coffee and talk about what happened yesterday and what do we think today's message is going to be. Um, and uh, they would then, with the communications team, put together a, a you know, presentation and I would review it and we'd go through it. And so, uh, you know, that tone and, and, and the, the words were really a collaborative approach uh, because of what we were, the message they had put together, like the, the message they wanted us to deliver. Uh, and, and uh, you know, my team has been, were extraordinary through this period of time. They, uh, you know, they are every bit a, a, a part or maybe more so than I was of that being very consistent and specific about what we said and what the message behind it was. We were really, we were worried as this drug on or people, you know, calling someone else is doing this, you know, and rotational workers come home and they're not isolated. All of the, we were worried about that people were going to lose sight of what we really had to do here in terms of respecting one another and supporting and being kind to each other. Uh, and that's why it was really specific in the messaging. And it was, a, it was a really, truly a team effort. Uh, 
Um, and ironically, it was in a position for me, uh, oddly enough, it was the, the language in some ways is who I am, but it's not who people thought I was. <laughs> because my seven years of governing were tough. You know, but anyone who knows me and knew me outside of my job, or even people who knew me in my job, um, uh, know that that's who I am. But if you'd watch me govern, and you only saw me on the news, you would wonder who, you know, this guy's a pretty tough uh, character. Cole, you know, he's determined to get where he's going, and that's it. Um, you know, and some of my colleagues often in their, in their, and I think people who send me said that, you know, this was people began to see uh, me who, for who I was. The real you. Yeah. yeah. Um, we sort of hit on, on, on the things that, that came after. So the, you essentially shut things down. Yeah. Uh, you move us, you move the province into a lockdown. So we, what we did was, uh, and how we assess this was on, and if you look at I, a very simplistic, I always say we shut down the service side of our economy. Mm. Anything that there was interfacing between two individuals that were, were, were close contact among group, we shut it down. The construction side, you know, that part of it, we allowed to continue to function. Uh, there were certain things we had to continue to do, food supply, food chain, all of that. We allowed to function under certain protocols we put in place. It was interesting. And I think one of the un, unintended consequences for that, and kudos to, to public health, when we shut down the service side, we could then focus on you know, fish plants, poultry plants, what other things we have to put in place in there to keep people safe, do those. And then as we started to look at uh, that service side sector being shut down, and we knew this thing was going to be here for a while, that part of our economy was functioning under public health protocols. And then we could circle, circle, circle back and figure out with the associations that represented, you know, the cosmetology association, the restaurant association, what are the protocols that would allow us to open up that service side uh, in a safe way. So there could be interaction between, uh, you know, the individuals who would have ever thought a year ago or, you know, I guess like 18 months ago that you'd be going to get a haircut, wearing a mask and, and the person giving it to you having a mask on, you know, all of those types of things, or there's a barrier between you and them, uh, or, you know, you go to a restaurant, you can't go to a table, just go to the table you're at, you know, uh, but that was all uh, because I think we took that definitive step allowed part of our economy to function while we focused on that and it really was that service side the interaction between individuals so on march 22nd you announced an official state of emergency what was this? it was almost like you were leading up to that all week and then so on the 15th we, we get our first three presumptive cases exactly a week to the day state of emergency um, why issue the state of emergency? What was the intent? Uh, we, when we, so we had the health protection act health that's there, the, uh, health order that Dr. Strang had, but there were certain things that we couldn't do with that. And the reason the state of emergency allowed us to be decisive, uh, and, and, and in real time, um, it's still in effect. Uh, it allowed us to do things uh, like rent evictions. You know, it allowed us to put that in there. It allowed us to. Uh, it allowed us to make some uh, tough decisions around uh, public places. 
uh, we didn't have time, to be honest with you, uh, and, and uh, to debate those issues. We didn't have time to sit around and try to explain on the front end why we needed the authority to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew we had to do it. Um, uh, our number one focus was uh, on how do I protect the health of Nova Scotians? Uh, and uh, that order provided us with that ability to act quickly. Now, we didn't abuse it, I don't think. Uh, others may feel we did, uh, but we, but it, 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 we knew, and, and I, I, I'm repeating myself a lot, but acting quickly and firmly mattered. I, I, you, you, when you look across, even in some parts of our own country, but around the world, when when governments hesitated, the virus took over, and we just couldn't hesitate. This is we were, in, and, and mind you, we're in week one. You know, we're, we're just really within the nine, 10 days of this. And we, we were really starting to say, you know, that we were, we felt we were in a good position. We just didn't know the length of time that we would be in it. Um, um, and, and to be honest with you, a year later, um, it's quite remarkable the amount of vaccines that are out there right now. I mean, when you look historically around the world, uh, we haven't respond, been able to respond that quickly, even though this has been challenging and, you know, um, it, it has been quite amazing. Well, one last question. We asked, you know, well, your government did a lot of things in that, in that one week. Uh, you made all the, you mentioned rent to, uh, rent, rent evictions being halted, uh, any number of uh, things you did at, at different levels of asking university students from within the province to go home to make room in the residences for students from out of province who were stuck here. Um, you invested a million dollars in Feed Nova Scotia, which people forget, but that was huge just to give them the, the cash flow to be able to support what was coming. Um, $2.2 million invested in income assistance to at-risk Nova Scotians literally $50 checks so people could buy cleaning supplies. Mm -hmm. Very intentional things. Um, a lot of things, as you said, done with intention and a lot of smart people doing and suggesting these things. I wonder, this will be the last question, we have a sense of what you loved about the job in the first seven years. In your final 11 months, what do you remember as the thing that you, you loved the most about? What was a challenging, stressful, scary, emotionally wrought experience what do you take away from it so the first the pandemic is what we're talking about was one aspect of that entire year uh port of pick uh the helicopter crash uh snowbird uh fishing vessel we lost right off the coast of my riding if we went over the hill here you could we would be where the chief william solace went down um there was a lot of death and sadness um, but one, and uh, that will always be something that'll be part of this year for me. And, uh, I, I don't know, um, I didn't know, to be honest with you, the impact it was having at the time. Um, it was really midway through that I realized this was, you know, that this is not a normal process we're trying to go through. But one of the other things that'll really stand out to me is Nova Scotians. Um, you know, 
checking on neighbors that they lived next to for however many years and probably hadn't called them. Uh, you know, people who saw a single mom with kids, can I get you groceries? Finding ways to connect with a senior who lives, people found unique ways to stay connected. Like the, the, you know, the 80 year old trying to figure out how to use their, an iPad for the first time so they could FaceTime their grandkids. Uh, there was one great, I'm going to get emotional. There was one great picture somebody had sent me and it was, it was right after we started allowing a bit more movement and it was a grandkid and I don't know them and they were running and it was a video that had come to me and they were running up the driveway to his grandparents and, and the, the sheer excitement on both sides of that interaction um, was, was quite uh, something to, to, to see. Um, uh, but Nova Scotians really have bought in and responded in a positive way. And, and one final gift for me about COVID, uh, for me about COVID really was, I guess there was a few, but I, 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 I got to govern, um, uh, and I, I, we got to focus on this issue in, in, in a way that I think, uh, allowed you to learn a lot about yourself and about the people you represent. Uh, and I also met Dr. Strang. I didn't know him prior to uh, to this other than I always tease him. I used to say, the only thing I knew about him, he told me everything I like to do was bad for me <laughs> as the public health officer. Yeah. So, uh, but I, he's a genuinely caring human being. Um, it's well documented. He has a, a teenage son that requires a lot of support and care. So we would be in the thick of things, uh, you know, uh, in the midst of this, when Northwood was happening, uh, when other parts of this were happening, uh, him trying to refine, um, you know, he had to go home and become a parent, uh, you know, and, and he never complained. He was truly focused. Uh, and I, I, I say this, um, uh, he is a genuinely caring human being, someone who I really grown to admire and appreciate, uh, and someone that I hope my son turns out like. Uh, you know, he's a uh, and a great male role model, and um, there aren't many of those around. Um, and who shows you who he is, not afraid to show you who he is, and uh, does it in a thoughtful, caring, kind way. So. Um, those are the things that I will take from uh, this year and, and grateful for, you know, the, the experience in some ways it's odd. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, my, the, the elected caucus was beyond uh, supportive and my own staff that uh, uh, at OneGov uh, uh, really don't get enough credit uh, for the role they played in this. Um, I get a message today from, a note that I sent a year ago today out to the team, and it really was uh, uh, thanking social media person for a great job and thanking uh, uh, our communications team who put together a great message on that particular day and went out and thanking my chief of staff who uh, showed great leadership in the boardroom in the morning to snap us into line and including me. Uh, and uh, they deserve a lot of credit. Uh, you know, I get, I get, I get, my bucket gets filled up because people see me as the one on TV and people will say kind things to me as I'm walking to and from and out and about to this day. Um, I hope your listeners understand it wasn't just me. I was surrounded by a really extraordinary group of Nova Scotians who uh, 
who, who sacrificed a lot individually uh, to get us through this. And we're, we're on the cusp of seeing the other side of this. Uh, we just need everyone to be a bit more patient for a few more months. Uh, and uh, my final message will be, as you get a call to take a vaccine, don't ask which one. Uh, if it's been approved by Health Canada, take the vaccine. Thank you. thank you to former Premier Stephen McNeil for um, sharing his time with us. Uh, stay tuned to the very end. We do a, a quick firing round with uh, with the Premier. We pepper him with some, some questions, uh, which is, is kind of a fun way to end it. Um, we're a year uh, out since all of this occurred, and this project is really about offering an opportunity to document the key people uh, and key perspectives that helped shape um, our region's response to the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. Um, and it was a real pleasure to, to start here tonight with or today with episode uh, number one uh, with Premier Stephen McNeil. Um, in episode two, uh, Grounded, we hear from Joyce Carter. Uh, she's the CEO and president of the Halifax Stanfield International Airport. Uh, she also uh, holds a key leadership role uh, at the federal level uh, amongst all Canadian airports, um, acting as a voice for airports. Uh, and she also plays a very similar role internationally as well. Um, so we're going to hear about what happens when the Premier declares a state of emergency. And we'll chat with Joyce about uh, the world she saw that time last year, um, both locally here in, in the region uh, and also what she was seeing in her role as a, more of a national and, and global ambassador for the aviation industry. Uh, aviation is uh, intertwined into a, the global economy in ways that uh, we often don't consider. So I'm um, thrilled to have her join us for the second uh, podcast in this 10-podcast uh, series. Uh, the third episode will feature uh, Sean Fraser. Uh, Sean Fraser is a member of Parliament for Central Nova, um, but he's also the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Finance uh, and was the Parliamentary Secretary uh, during the pandemic um, uh, response rollout all of last year. Uh, he's also been named the best orator in the House of Commons uh, as voted by uh, all elected officials in Ottawa. Um, so he's very, uh, he brings a very interesting perspective and he's going to be talking with us about the week leading up to uh, the announcement of the CERB and sort of telling us and sharing a behind the scenes look of what all that uh, meant and what it took um, as we continue down this journey of exploring this time last year um, from the perspectives uh, that changed the, the course of our local history. Um, really thrilled that you've listened to this, uh, this whole thing this far. I uh, want to take a moment to say thank you to um, uh, Stephanie Purcell and uh, Danielle Mew from Vox. Uh, I want to thank, thank uh, Kirsten Steven here at This Is Marketing, the whole team at This Is Marketing, Christian, Nathan, uh, Alicia, uh, Mead, uh, <laughs> Victoria, Ava, uh, Julian, um, Clary, uh, Bruce, um, Kirk, uh, and, uh, and Brian. Um, plus all of our partners and my goodness I'm sure I forgot someone oh goodness if I did you'll know you know how sore I am if I did um, again thank you for taking the time to listen uh, this time last year.ca is the domain we are going to roll out next week as well um, what we're raising money for uh, we're, we're trying to raise money for something in particular uh, and we will share that next week so in the meantime if you found value here if you liked this um, 
please do consider uh, subscribing and letting some friends know. It'd be great to get lots of uh, people paying attention and, and, and firing questions our way. Uh, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll end with the firing round with uh, former Premier Stephen McNeil talking about this time last year. During the pandemic, what was your go-to takeout? There was no go such thing as go-to takeout. <laughs> no, you, you must have been doing takeout food. A Boston pizza. Boston pizza, okay. But actually, it would be the boneless chicken uh, at Boston pizza. So. Even better, okay. Um, everyone, you you say you say uh, it's about exercise, not to socialize. Everyone was walking. What was your walking route? So I would actually, I lived on Hollow Street. I'd walk down to uh, the container terminal. I'd walk around the container terminal, walk back up the waterfront, typically up to... Uh, 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 Hollis, up, not, not, not Hollis, but up to uh, Duke Street, and you would go up and get back on to, um, I'd go past Hollis up to Brunswick Street, go down by the LGs, and then walk back down to where my apartment was on Hollis Street. Uh, who was your first outside the bubble hug? Outside your bubble. Outside my bubble? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to, I could probably say that's my wife because she was outside my bubble. <laughs> um, all right. You've got, uh, you got a roughly two hour commute home. Uh, quite a, quite a thing. Is it, uh, are you taking work calls? Is it music? Is it podcast or is it sweet, sweet silence? No, I'm on the phone. I'm on the phone a lot. Yeah. Uh, particularly it is, uh, I, I usually get a, some people that I would uh, seek advice from or people that I would get some counsel from said, you must, when I, when my their phone would ring, they pick it up and I say, hello, how you doing? They said, you must be on the road. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be a common theme. Yeah. Okay. And the last one, uh, stay the blaze at home, planned or spontaneous? Oh, it was, well, listen, it's planned by those very people. I told you my office, my chief of staff came down, Lori, and came down and said, would you stay, would you say stay the blaze at home? Not everyone on the communications team was agreeing with that was a good phrase. And uh, I said, and I, I, I had a much more colorful response uh, about it, but I said, yes, um, I could hear my mother say, stay the blazes outdoors. Uh, and uh, uh, I, and, and uh, that was her, those, that was her phrase. And uh, when we said it, I had no idea it would take off like it did, but uh, the good news is uh, it saves a couple of small businesses, Nova Scotia who uh, used it and capitalized on it and, uh, uh, and embraced a lot of money for charity. Uh, which was really good, but uh, I said it, but it was my staff's words. So you see, that's what I meant by uh, what a good team it was. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you.